Cheers. 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 Right. Skull. With all the enthusiasm. Something that uh, Richard Kilmer used to say all the time to all of his students was, when in doubt, to play beautifully. You know, it's easy to think of that quote and go, if you don't know what to do with a, with a phrase of music, just play it really beautifully, right? But for me at that time, that meant like when you are in a period of doubt, of deep doubt, self-doubt, doubt about life, like life doubt, play beautifully, right? And, and we all go through these periods, I think all of us probably do go through these periods that are dark and full of doubt. And so that resonated with me a lot during that period. And I went, you know, I really just want to write something really beautiful right now. Um, and that's, that was what I tried to do. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. I am here with my co-host, Patty Ryan. And this is my co-host, Asia Myshek. Yay, we're recording. Woohoo. Yeah, how, how was your trip to Texas? It was, uh, it was good. It was a little warmer and a little bit more humid than Minnesota, so I kind of weirdly miss the Minnesota weather. But yeah, it was really productive. We had a great concert on Friday with Kinetic Ensemble, um, which is a conductless ensemble that I'm one of the original members of. And uh, we did one of our, we've been avoiding performing the Tchaikovsky Serenade for Strings, but we decided to do it this time. Well, prior, because I think we wanted to identify that we were doing repertoire that wasn't as standard, but right. it was time. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, I did a couple little trips to San Antonio, where I did some performances with my uh, kind of brand new piano trio, the Trio Xenia, with some old colleagues of mine. And uh, we also did a little day trip to Austin and back and then performed in Houston. And then I flew back here. And now I'm settled for the time, which is a nice feeling. How about you? How, are, how has your past essentially month been? <laughs> Our two weeks. Yeah, to be honest, like super stressful. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So I always feel like when like this thing is done, I'll have more time. And then right. I'm like, oh, when this thing is done, I'll have more time. And a lot of stuff has come to a close. I'm done with the Sioux City season. I'm done with the community orchestra and this teaching job that was one of the most difficult jobs I've ever had. But now I'm planning for camp. <laughs> right, right. I just had a meeting with the teachers this morning and I'm just feeling so overwhelmed by all of the work. Um, this is actually my last summer directing the camp. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to not have these responsibilities in the future. Yeah. Do you also have to train someone to when, when you are replaced? So there's yeah. that added part too of like, you know, you can't just do your job, you have to also remember how you do your job and, and communicate that to someone else. So that's right. See how that's wearing. Yeah. Yeah. And she's actually, she's super great. Um, I've only met her a couple of times so far, but she seems so capable and just like kind of along for the ride right now. And like when I took over the director position, um, the former director has been super available to me with any questions I have. So I plan on doing that for her too, because so much of the planning happens way before summer mm -hmm. and it's just, it's hard to communicate how to do that, I guess. Yeah. And like, you can't be paying to train someone for like basically an entire year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah. And camp is yet again in a new space. And so the teachers had all these questions like, is there AC? Do the windows open? Cause it, it gets so freaking hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> camp is just miserable. And I'm just like, I don't know. I've been to that building three times. Like, I am sorry. I don't have these answers, but, or like, how big is the room I'll be teaching? And like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know for sure how many rooms we'll have available to us. So it's just like this big scheduling puzzle and so many things depend on so many other things. And it's just like, yeah. it's taking up a lot of brain space that I wish I could be using to play the violin right now. Oh, I thought you were going to say to be playing Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I also feel like I get really anxious when I think I'm going to have all this practice time and then like yeah. stuff that's much more pressing comes up mm-hmm. and like, oh, what a life to just have all day to play my violin that that was back in like school days though and even then it was like I felt my I was pulling my hair out as well even though like the whole intent was to sit there and practice you know yeah you know actually I've been thinking a lot about my college days since our last episode was with someone I went to college with yeah I was super impressed when he was talking about like studying for tests and stuff because I didn't do that like I think (laughs) actually what I was best at in college was wasting time. And I have like absolutely <laughs> idea what I did with that time. And now looking back, it's like, yeah, I actually had a lot more freedom to practice, but I just didn't do it. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what I was doing, but nothing important. So, well, I mean, I think that it's just character building. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it made you who you are today, Asia. So <laughs> I guess I wish I knew what went into that, but I have no <laughs> <laughs> Well, Do you want to tell me how you met Jeff, our guest today? Yeah, today's guest is Jeff Paul, who I met playing in the Sioux City Symphony. He is our principal oboe, and oh my god, his oboe playing is just some of the best I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm trying to decide if I should like save some of this to like gush about his playing in front of him. Sure, you can. Um, Yeah. I think it'll make him really uncomfortable, but well, that's good. I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's nothing I haven't said to him before, but right. Um, yeah, he's just his musical instincts are fantastic, and I was so excited when we got our upcoming season program that he was commissioned to write a piece. So we will be playing a piece commissioned by the Sioux City Symphony, written by our principal oboist and. We've talked a little bit about it. He obviously doesn't have a recording of it yet, so we won't hear it today, but I think we'll talk about it a little bit more. And yeah, I'm just really excited to hear, you know, what he comes up for with, for us, what he comes up with for us to play. Yes, that is a sentence. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I have had so much caffeine today. Uh Oh, and And you're about to have more. (laughs) I know. And I was feeling like really anxious and jittery. And then I was like, oh no, I forgot to eat. So gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have eaten, but I I think, you know, the imbalance of like coffee on an empty stomach and I'm still like a little frazzled. So yeah. Great way to start an interview. Yeah. Well, it's going to be, I mean, very, this will, it's interesting because, you know, typically poor Mia Mozart is with some kind of alcohol-based cocktail drink beer whatever but this this edition of it is with caffeine as the as the main I know and I'm and so we'll see how our interviews is different from instead of when we're drinking it's like when we're you know I I don't know but 
Well, I don't, I'll save some of this, but honestly, I'm very excited that this is our drink today is, did we announce it already or should we wait to announce it? Let's wait. Okay. But this is, I'm very excited. When I, when I heard, I was like, oh, this is going to be up my alley. So, so listeners, you'll just have to keep listening. <laughs> just, or skip 20 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Welcome to Pour Me a Mozart, Jeff. I'm so glad you decided to join us today. Me too. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing okay today. It's been yeah. a hectic day. I'm excited though. I got an instrument shipment that arrived. Oh. <laughs> that, um, I can't make any sounds on them yet, but I'm looking forward to trying to demystify them a little bit. What is it? Um, yeah, I, nice. I, I've just received a neigh a traditional Egyptian flute cool. and a mijwiz, which is also a traditional Arabic instrument, double reed kind of instrument. Ooh. I can't make a sound on either one yet. Like okay. not at all. No sounds. Okay. Wow. So I, when you said you couldn't make a sound, I thought it was something to do with like construction, but it's just, you haven't figured oh, how, I, okay. I haven't yet figured them out. <laughs> okay. Very cool. Fun. Yeah, I can't wait until you do figure them out. No, me neither. This has <laughs> been a this has been a journey for me. Like my ancestry is primarily Lebanese, so I kind of have this like side story going on in my life of casually trying to explore music from that region and seeing if there's like some magical connection that just happens. Ancestral. <laughs> well, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. I forgot I was going to introduce you. Well, <laughs> so for me, a Mozart listeners, please welcome again, Jeff Paul, principal oboe in the South Dakota Symphony, the Sioux City Symphony, um, jazz guy on jazz guy on <laughs> piano, right? Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and composer. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry, I'm just a jazz guy. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because I like I don't really get to see that side of you in the orchestral setting. So mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. Yeah, almost never. But it's something I'm like really passionate about my whole life. Improvisation, um, not simply just limiting that to jazz, but improvisation in general. Um, but also jazz idioms too. I play very regularly in a lot of groups around like South Dakota. So there's a couple moments that I've experienced and there's one like big moment where you bring this to the orchestra that I've not experienced, but there was one concert we played where you had to give like 12 tuning A's or something. It was ridiculous. How and <laughs> I charge per A in those situations. I mean, you should. <laughs> it's like 12. How many sections are there? <laughs> it, oh, man. No, it was like for every single piece we played. Mm -hmm. It had different instrumentation and people were coming and going off stage. And yeah. 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 And I like anytime I'm in a new orchestra or if you have a sub, like I know from the tuning A if you're there or not, even <laughs> if I haven't turned around or like looked at the roster. And I knew you were there because I think we had like just talked backstage and um, you'd given several A's and then one was a B flat. So I was like, and I was like, what happened to Jeff? And then I found out you did it because you were bored. 
it's kind of a silly cure for boredom, but it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that one. Um, I think it was this season, there was some trumpet solo that you had to like kind of imitate either earlier or later in the piece. And the trumpet had this big scoop and you just decided to add it in on your oboe solo. And I remember seeing our conductor, Ryan, kind of go like, ooh. And that's like <laughs> what I was feeling on the inside. I was like, I didn't know you could do that on the oboe. You, yeah, it's possible. I wanted to say you can't, but you, you can do it. It's it's possible. It's not done a lot, but um, I'm, I think you're talking about, I think you're talking about American in Paris, maybe the Gershwin. Um, we both- Did you play that this season? I think we did. Wow. We did this season, and the trumpet and oboe both have kind of the main melody um, as a solo, one after the other. And um, I mean, you know, it's meant to be scooped. I think I think George would have appreciated that. <laughs> as a jazz guy himself, right now. And jazz. I've also heard that you have totally turned Handel's Messiah into your own, and I someday. <laughs> to experience this <laughs> um yeah you know that's of course an annual tradition with the south dakota symphony and and obviously in many many other places as well um our conductor david geyer um and I, he trusts me so he knows i'm not gonna flip anything upside down but he gives me full license uh, particularly in the symphonia the opening of the messiah um to do whatever I want to do. So the game for me is to sort of add new and more ornaments every season. Um, and well, so it has come to uh, <laughs> represent something very little like the original at this point. <laughs> and how many seasons have you currently done this? Um, now let's let's count, I just count the number my, of ornaments. Yeah. I know. I just completed my 20th season with this. Oh. We haven't done it since that very first year, but I mean, it probably at least 10. Okay. <laughs> I've heard it's elaborate. It It's uh, tasteless. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Rococo, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> Rococo. Extremely floral. Um, yeah. Yep. This like a kind version. <laughs> <laughs> There's about at this point like 40 ladies on the swing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we found out that this is your very first podcast appearance. So yes. we were hoping to do a little podcast crossover with Patty's podcast, Hiding Behind the Music Stand. So, Patty, do you want to take it away with some Spitfire sure. questions? Sure. Yeah. Well, this is just a very mini introduction, uh, initiation into the podcast land. So I'm selecting maybe my three favorite Spitfires from this past season. Are you ready? No, but let's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to answer as fast as possible because Asia's editing and not me. So <laughs> I don't like editing. So. <laughs> All right. Tchaikovsky or Stravinsky? Stravinsky. Favorite zoo animal to see? Sloth. Oh, okay. And alternate universe musical instrument? Oh my God. Alternate universe musical instrument, Iwi. The what? What's that? 
<laughs> uh, it's a pipe dream of mine. It's the electronic wind instrument. It's a wind synthesizer. Oh, oh I thought it was Rick like an Hara animal. has been telling me about that. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Can you play it? One? No, I don't have it. Oh, I, I, it's on my list. <laughs> is it expensive or is it reasonably priced? It's reasonably priced. The, the, the issue is the modern ones that you can get are more replicating sampled based, although you can run them still through computer and program the sounds. But the older versions um, are a little bit more like they function more like its own instrument, its own electronic sound palette, and less more like modeling, like sounding like a trumpet or a saxophone or something. Hmm. So I want to find the old model. Gotcha. Cool. Well, there you go. <laughs> yep. Welcome. Thank you. Over. That was really yeah. great. Yeah. Did I pass? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did like way better than I did when I on Patty's <laughs> podcast. You asked okay. easy questions. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> well, can I pry why Stravinsky? You said Stravinsky, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, for some reason, which it's weird being an oboist, I should probably say Tchaikovsky. But um, as a composer, Stravinsky has always fascinated me a lot more. Um, and just in terms of his approach to rhythm, harmony, um, I always gravitated to his kind of neo-primitivist um, approach, even, I mean, even his neoclassical stuff, I, I always found interesting, but I like the the ancient folklore based things more. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Let's talk about the beverage you chose for us today. Sure. I have here a matcha latte, which is something that I'm kind of new with. Um, you can't see it. <laughs> you guys can't see it either. There it is. There oh. it is. Okay. And I'm improvising on it because normally I make it with all milk and my son has drank all the milk. <laughs> so I used half water and half, half and half, half, half and half. Gotcha. How is it? I don't know yet. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Well, shall but we take a, I think we haven't done an official cheers yet. Yeah. So I mean, cheers. 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 Clink. Thud. <laughs> Thud. Thunk. Oh, it's good. It's good this way. With half, half, and half. <laughs> so do you do I, the, oh, oh no, 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 go ahead. I guess I, I was going to explain. Uh, I, so I'm excited because I, I recently, as about a year ago, got into matcha lattes. Like prior, I thought it tasted like grass, and I was like, this is gross. But then, I think I, I was slowly introduced by a good friend of mine of you know how good it can be, and that there's certain grades of matcha. Sorry, I'm just going into this. So yeah, like, I think yeah, the two. The two main ones are culinary grade and ceremony grade and culinary grade is cheaper. It's mm -hmm. the one I kind of buy because for myself when I want to make a matcha latte, because I, if I'm going to add milk to it, I, I kind of want to just, you know, it's not like I'm getting the full flavor of it. It's mixed with something. However, if you go to a good coffee shop, they should have ceremony grade, which is obviously more expensive out $10 more expensive per ounce or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, and those whenever I get really good matcha latte, like the ceremony grade, to me, I get the like best buzz ever from it, like the best like, you know, matcha 
caffeine buzz where it's like I feel that I'm in control of my body and I'm in control of things and I'm like centered and zen but then I also have a little bit of alertness to like do things more right right I don't know if that's how I don't know if like you know if that's like your your experience or you know I'm I'm very new to matcha like probably three months into it to okay. my, matcha, my matcha journey and I, I am really enjoying sort of like the clarity of mind yeah. um, and the alertness with yeah. but it's sort of a calm alertness. Yes. Which, right. is, which is something I don't get from coffee, even though I'm a I'm a daily multiple cups a day coffee drinker too. Matcha seems to come without the jitters and stuff. I found this, I don't know what grade it is. I could find it. I'm just gonna grab it and show you. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, culinary. It should say, culinary. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly I have I buy jade leaf as well. Yeah. Okay. So Yeah, and so that's then, totally fine. Yeah, that's you that's where it's that's the more reasonable priced powder that you can get or you know. I'm gonna have to try and find ceremonial grade. That sounds mm -hmm. really fun and interesting to me. Yeah, I have yet to get it myself and do it. I that's where I just like default to going to a, a coffee shop and like a good one that I can be assured that it's gonna be that got high quality um, right but yeah right. yeah there there are so many that like pre-sweeten all of their yes that too stuff like that too and yeah that doesn't work for me so <laughs> or like occasionally if i feel like i need something a little sweet but yeah like traditionally you just um sorry i'm really just going for it <laughs> I, I, this is I, again totally clearly totally. i love matcha now so. <laughs> um you're, it's i think the purport probably on the back of that package it tells you but it's like Two, two, one, two ounce of the of the powder to like you have to make a shot first in a, essentially right maybe you can read yeah. it there yeah this says to add a half to one teaspoon of the powder to milk sweeten if desired and then yeah so I usually do it with a little milk or a little water first mm -hmm. and then add hot milk after that yeah or froth it or something yeah right right oh, yeah. I haven't heard that yet. yeah my friend has a frother and I had my matcha and so he made me like a frothed matcha latte and it was like really good <laughs> yeah um and also another vehicle which is well I, I decided to do today is an iced matcha latte which is also as delicious it's, okay, it's fitting for this very hot day mm -hmm. <laughs> so I am starting my matcha journey today congratulations do you Thank enjoy you. it welcome Asia yeah I like it I got a hot one which is super dumb because it is hot today. Mm -hmm. And I turn my AC off when I record. So mm. coming over later, she's going to see a very sweaty Asia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for it. <laughs> but yeah, I love, um, I've had a few sips. It's delicious. Um, I got it with almond milk because 2% makes me feel bad. Um, oh. <laughs> so I make mine with either almond or, or oat milk as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of the clarity of mind and the no jitters. I mean, there are some days that I have like a bunch of coffee and then I try to practice and I'm just like, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. And you got yours from caribou it looks like. Okay. So I had quite the adventure trying to get this today. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I poked a, I, I pressed a button. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Patty knows I'm already kind of stressed out, but, um, to add to it, I knew there was a Starbucks at Target and I was like, I don't think I have time to go all the way to Target. So like, what's the closest Starbucks to me? 
So I Google it and I drive by what is a caribou. And I was like, well, I looked up Starbucks, but that's a caribou. So I keep going and then I'm like, this is too far. So I turn around and I look it up again and Googling Starbucks sent me to a caribou. And so I was just like, I can't with this. I guess I'll just get it from caribou. But like I had pulled up the menu because I was like, I just want to make sure that they have this. And then I was like, but I looked at the Starbucks menu. So I really hope caribou has this too. They did, but yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound that bad now that I say it out loud. But in the moment, I was just like, what is happening? It can be, it can be flustering. I'm sure yeah. Google is confused. Yeah, very confused. I, I feel like it needs to be pointed out that I also have here a macaron. It's a little, it's a couple of days old from a patisserie where my daughter works in Sioux Falls. Ooh. And she just happened to have some of these that she brought home from work the other day that are mango matcha. Yum. But I give it a try. I don't, I normally don't eat these because they're a little too sweet for me, but mango matcha macaron. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to work at a French bakery and the pastry team kathy and christina shout out oh they made the best macarons this place is pretty great you gotta try it in sioux falls yeah maybe i'll take the audition if they have one yeah do it let's talk about your musical journey Mm -hmm. so just like a really brief overview of the jeff paul origin story um, your main instrument, any other instruments that you haven't already mentioned, <laughs> influential teachers, that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. So I I started my musical journey on piano and was taking lessons when I was four and got pretty serious about it fairly quickly, I would say. So I was competing in things at a really young age um, and and uh, my dad was a pianist, so he would sit with me and practice and um, I should say is still a pianist. <laughs> um, and he was at, uh, in his youth also really serious classical pianist. And then he kind of mostly plays more entertainment kind of based gigs now, not as a job, um, but as an I don't want to say amateur because he was really good, but he wasn't a professional pianist or musician full time. Right. And so he was always performing and he was doing things like medleys from Elton John's music. And and he would had a whole custom made sequined cape and big glasses. And and I remember like just sitting on the on the trailer in our hometown Fourth of July parades and stuff like that with him and his piano and the rest of the band and they would you know just always be doing these things so like music was just all around me all the time as um as a kid so um so yeah piano was was my gateway i guess you would say i started playing the oboe in fourth grade i think the reason as i understand it that they allowed me to do that um, was because i could already read music and so i could focus on the sort of steep learning curve of oboe things while the director was working with um, other students who were just starting to read music in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it kind of worked out that way. Can I ask a quick question, Mm -hmm. a comparative question? So oftentimes violists will start on violin and then switch over. 
Um, is that something usually similar in the sort of a conversion of like, I'm assuming most people might start with clarinet and then switch to oboe or something along those lines? Is that kind of a similar? Yeah, that's more common. Okay. Um, and I think I think mostly you see that because of sim just simply because of accessibility, right? Clarinets or flutes or saxophones, and also because a lot of um, early music educators don't know a lot about double reeds. So yeah. you know, right? So you get a lot of students that start on single reeds or flutes, right? Things like that. Yeah. Um, before they switch over and sort of convert to double reeds, oboe and bassoon. And whatnot. Is there any sort of like, so I mean, this is a very subtle pride, but sometimes when there's a true violist who started and you know and is a violist to this day, they they can't and didn't ever play violin. That's there's a little bit of like, oh, I'm an original. Hey, but right. of course, of course, in the professional world, that doesn't matter. But is there something kind of? Do you have that kind of like small pride of being an oboist from the get go, or? Um, actually, kind of the opposite. Oh, okay. <laughs> in a way, not not that that I'm not proud of having started on oboe with my wind instruments, but I feel pretty strongly that early uh, woodwind education, there, there's no reason for it not to include double reeds. So I, I see. Think, yeah. Like you know, it's just simply a matter of um, um, educators feeling confident, right, that they can tackle a double reed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and so. I would say, while it might have a steeper learning curve than other instruments, it definitely plateaus out. And, um, you know, I, I started saxophone in high school, right? And for me, that was like a toy picking up after playing the oboe. But, you know, that has a much steeper learning, or much steeper curve later on in the process, right? To get really good at the saxophone, right? You kind of go up like that and the oboe is more that way <laughs> hmm. so, so who would you say not a lot some... of pride necessarily <laughs> just circumstance who would you say are some influential teachers along the way oh my gosh um so so many i've had i've been so fortunate to have really wonderful teachers and mentors my uh my late piano teacher edward francis in california was um was just maybe one of my my greatest mentors, supporters, uh, friends after a while. And he was just a wonderful human being that really encouraged me and, and pushed me to the highest levels I could possibly achieve um, at that point. He was even my, uh, my confirmation sponsor. <laughs> um, I am a recovering Catholic currently. Uh, <laughs> Same. Uh, yeah, not, not a big deal, but I was raised that way. So, um, so I, I chose my piano teacher to be, you know, so my sponsor for that because, because of music, because of his mentorship and his wisdom. And, and I learned so much from him about um, how to be a human, how to be a gentleman, even, you know, I know that comes as a surprise to you, probably Asia. But <laughs> <laughs> There's knowledge back there somewhere. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he he definitely was a huge mentor, and also, I mean, some of my mentors and teachers on oboe in particular, Sal Spano in California, and after him, uh, David Weiss, who also passed away a number of years ago. Um, he played principal oboe in the Los Angeles 
Philharmonic for 35 years or something like that. And my, my university teachers at the Eastman School of Music, Richard Kilmer, uh, if you talk to anybody who's studied with him pretty much across the board, um, he's just held in such high esteem as not just a wonderful oboist and teacher and mentor, but a great human who promotes um, compassion and kindness and and everything you can imagine in that way. And and what I particularly enjoyed about studying with him that was he was a a huge champion of my journey on other instruments and with other kinds of music. I remember in my audition process for various conservatories, there were other um, higher profile teachers who said very point blank, like, if you come here, you're not playing saxophone, you're not playing piano, you're not composing, you're not doing jazz, right? But uh, Mr. Kilmer in particular was very clear about, yes, do all of that. That only strengthens your musicianship and not every musician should be the same. Um, and then um, and then once I got to grad school at USC, um, I was back with David Weiss again for a year, and then with Alan Vogel, um, principal oboe, re retired now, but principal oboist at the time of the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, who's just kind of, Alan's kind of just Buddha. <laughs> Man, I love that you knew that you wanted someone to foster all of those interests that you had. I um, did. Oh, you didn't? I didn't know. <laughs> it just happened that way? Oh, I didn't know at all. Um, this, this might, this might be interesting, but, um, but music was such a part of my daily life. It's simply what I did. Like my, it was important in my family. My, I'm the oldest of three siblings and all of them also took music lessons seriously. And, um, music was just something that since I was in elementary school, I just assumed I would do like, there was never really any thought or decision about it until much later in life when it was too late. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> when it was too late to change my mind and try, oh. you know, I, I remember that um, kind of, that was like a daily conversation I would have with myself, my friends, my parents and others um, uh, while I was studying at Eastman was like, wait a minute, I never even stopped to think, do I want to do this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was just something I happened to be really good at. I happened to be very fortunate that um, my parents gave me a, a really wonderful opportunity for education. And I never, ever even stopped to think like most high schoolers do about, hey, what do I want to actually do with life or career? That wasn't even a thought in my mind until after I was already like, you know, eyeballs deep in it. Um, and eventually it took a while, but eventually I, I came to the realization that, yeah, actually there's, um, there are very few things better just in this world, in this life, in the universe than, than connecting with people through music. Do you yeah. ever feel like that you had a kind of purpose in that music was fulfilling your life purpose or, and that just, you know, every now and then one questions the purpose? Or is it something that you just really just kind of inherited in some way and just have following, following the stream wherever it takes you? I don't, yeah, I don't even, I don't know if I have a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I, I didn't mean, sorry, I, I realized I just met you and I didn't mean to like impose such a deep question. No, no, that's great. I mean, that's a really, really great thing to think about. Um, and, and certainly there are many, many times in my professional life, um, in my musical life that I, it, I do feel like I'm doing um, something with very much a purpose um, larger than myself. Um, and there are other times too, where I think I'm just doing this for me, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. there's always going to be that part, part of it. Otherwise it's not worth it. Right. Right. Yeah. So altruistic about things. Yeah. 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 Was writing music always part of your upbringing or did you, <laughs> I feel weird asking it this way. Did you make a conscious decision at some point to start writing I guess, music? I, I just felt like I had, um, creative motivation and I had a voice and there were things that I wanted to express um, that, and I had sort of, I had the background and technique and piano study, score study, music theory, which is my just favorite subject in the world. I love music theory. I just wanted to create, I guess. So I, I, I was writing music from a pretty young age, I want to say, I mean, it had to have been sixth or seventh grade. Um, I started writing piano pieces. Um, I had written a symphony, <laughs> a three movement symphony for mostly unusual combinations of instruments. Um, Such as? Uh, heckelphones, alto flutes, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> what is a hecklephone? You know, a hecklephone is sort of like a, a bass bass oboe. Okay. Um, it's just made by the company Heckle. So there's a couple of um, idiosyncratic differences between that and the usual bass oboe, which is not usual at all. Um, <laughs> or even bassoon, even. Or even bassoon. Yeah, it's an oct. It's pitched an octave lower than the oboe. Okay. Um, so if you can imagine just sort of like a lower English horn is kind of what that looks I feel like. like, like Asia's yeah. brain is like, <laughs> it's not capable of comprehending. I just, well, you know, her, like her nobody brain. has them, nobody plays them. Yeah. <laughs> what? So like, because, you know, it's such a treble instrument. Like, oboe is such a treble instrument to like think of it as lower. I think that's right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds more like a bassoon probably, but it can't quite match the range of bassoon on the low or higher end. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. It's a very odd instrument, but, but, um, that's what I did. I took, I took a, a very traditional symphonic form and tr just wrote this three movement symphony. in when I was in junior high school, um, and then a tone poem, I think, when I was in high school, that my um, my youth symphony that I played in programmed and performed, which was which was really great. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And so I and and I was really like honestly, what really kind of inspired me during those years was epic film music. Mm. I I dreamt so hard and still do actually to this day, if I'm being honest, of of being a film composer. I'm I'm not a huge film music connoisseur, but of course, you know, familiar with most of John Williams' output, 
Jerry Goldsmith, um, some of the lesser known, Mike, I mean, Michael Kamen, Elmer Bernstein, and, and living in the Los Angeles area for many years, had the opportunity to play under the batons of people like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, Michael Kamen, and Elmer Bernstein. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was just, for me, was something really exciting about, um, just about music in general was, I just loved film music. Yeah. I feel though, like, that's something that I, growing up in San Diego, I know it's not quite Thousand Oaks, but I felt that pull as well, whether or not that it, you know, it didn't affect me necessarily compositionally, but I remember maybe even taking for granted how big Hollywood was and how regional it is to us and how yeah. it influences what, what we desire in music too. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it's one of those, it's kind of weird because now that I live, I haven't lived in California or Southern California in such a long time. It's, it's like, I think back to my youth and I'm like, oh yeah, like I really, yeah, something about Hollywood and the big scores and, and, you know, running into like David Newman and Randy Newman and like, whatever. It's just like, yeah. so, uh, I don't know. That's, it's just something I, I kind of took for granted when I was younger. I think. It's amazing. It's really exciting. You know, it's to me when when you talk about Hollywood and going back to the golden age or even even now modern Hollywood, um, I sort of think of that similarly to what you what I hear a lot of New Yorkers say about New York. Right. There's there's just something about it. You kind of like. Like the the smells or the ghosts that have just been there before you are just kind of all around you right and it's um for me that was always just really exciting i loved it I and also really we also share that we both went to usc university of southern california and i befriended many composers when i of my you know grade and things like that and almost all of them wanted to become film composers too and and i you know we all did the sound like the scoring or we performed in their Mm -hmm. scores for the fit for the you know the usc cinema um school yeah, and stuff so, yeah. like that so it's like there's something really um i don't know just it's like amazing. Kind of part of this watching, weird dna mm -hmm. yeah watching a film or a tv show or something and then see like the names of your colleagues yeah. composer and stuff like that people you yeah, yeah i think like oh that's really cool <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. so this is a little bit of a different question than what patty asked in the spitfire questions what is your favorite in instrument that you do not play? It's it's got to be the cello. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, for I, the I cello. Mean, as, like yeah, classical instruments go, it would be the cello, and then a very close second would be the French horn. I mean, uh, but those are so close. I mean, in timbre and color and. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, as far as like Western European classical instruments go, those for sure. Yep. So even though the violin didn't make it into your top two, um, <laughs> Sorry. would you ever consider violin. writing for unaccompanied violin? Um, yes, I would consider that. Um, I haven't done unaccompanied violin yet, but I have composed a duo for violin and harp and a duo for violin and oboe. Um, and yeah, I, when I was younger, I was very much of the persuasion. Um, uh, and I think I think um, Francis Poulenc is quoted as, if I'm getting this right, is quoted as saying this uh, before me, but um, I love violins, but I hate the violin. <laughs> Rude. 
Um, I know, I know, but um, when I was what would Bach say? <laughs> I, I really related to that statement when I was younger. Um, I didn't really know any good violinists, and so the sound the only sound that sounded good was when they were in a large section to me when I was younger. And I went, "Oh man, this is really cool." And then yeah. you hear play them individually and go, "Hmm, not so cool anymore." <laughs> There is really something about that sound and like, I totally get it. Um, and part of what I love about orchestra is all of the different timbres coming together. And like, I don't know, there was one time, this isn't true anymore, but I had decided I didn't like the clarinet anymore because I heard a clarinet concerto and it was just why like- is, Why is that not true anymore? Because I like it again. Like I recovered. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> Did you know this about me? I no, don't I even heard, think the clarinet think should be considered a musical instrument. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, I guess at least you didn't say that about the violin. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> but uh, may I pry and say why? It's There's something about the cylindrical bore of the instrument. It's it's like the aesthetics or the sound it creates. The sound, yeah, like the physics, the acoustical physics, um, something about it that to me, I just never really enjoyed ever in my whole mm -hmm. life. And and I, and I of course I know some wonderful clarinet players, um, but um, I just never liked the instruments. Most woodwind instruments are considered to have a conical bore on the inside, which produces a certain set of physics, certain set of overtones and whatnot. And um, in my uh, in my knowledge, the clarinet is the only orchestral woodwind or wind instrument that's considered to have a cylindrical bore. So there's just something different about the properties that don't that um, is just it doesn't blend as as well with the other instruments to my ear. And I, I know some composers really like that varying quality. And to me, I'm, I just love a more homogenous sound. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. But it's interesting because um, I, I, maybe this is a common theme with, uh, with clarinet, but I grew up in want, like, you know, thinking like, oh, if, if I didn't play cello and I had to pick a woodwind instrument, it would have been oboe growing up. But then, because I, I kind of just really like the sound of, I don't know, there's something, you know, some people say like, well, why the oboe, right? But there's something about the kind of piercing, piercing kind of innocence of it or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then I think I went to college and I heard better clarinet players. And then I was like, you know, <laughs> USC being <laughs> a big clarinet school. And That's like- understatement, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I was like, oh, okay. Ashton. Now I'm on, on board with, with clarinet. But so that's where I'm like, oh, I have to think about that. Cause like maybe when I was younger, I, you know, there's, I was attuned to oboe in some way versus the clarinet, but. Maybe, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so you mentioned the standard Western orchestral instruments. And what you and I do is technically considered classical music. But do you think there's a better term that we could be using? That's a good question. I mean, it's it's hard for me to address that without acknowledging that any term for any sort of genre of music or anything is already too broad because it's it's diminutive in a way and and it's like what we call classical music 
is one of the most, I'm going to use some buzzwords here, but one of the most diverse and inclusive forms of music that we know of that has ever been invented in the world, um, because it, it includes four or 500 years um, of, of traditions that are from all over the globe um, and influenced by traditions that are all over the globe right i mean everywhere what we do is is like it's it's an incredible invention classical music um you know we we play things that are uh originally maybe intended for um the stiff upper crust of society but also salt of the earth and just human things and landscape things and and maybe a composer heard a sound uh from a different community right and went hmm that's really interesting to me all of that has made its way in into the canon of works that we perform regularly so so when i kind of step back and think about that i don't worry so much about the terminology and just i i'm really just more grateful and appreciative that like oh my gosh i can do this thing that's been influenced by anything that we know of sound wise in the on earth. Yeah. That is really cool. I hadn't thought about it that way. What would you, I guess, label your genre of writing? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) This is Nope music by Jeff Paul. (laughs) Nope. Nope music. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Or if you like play exploding kittens there's a nope card oh yeah he just like put, he just put a nope on that question i'm, I'm playing the nope card yeah but, um yeah i like genre is uh is wonderful in conversations with people to talk about right particularly with lay people i think who don't know a lot about um, music or what we do right and it's very useful to the that terminology is really useful there but the three of us know right off the bat right that to use any kind of genre to describe any piece of music really truly to its core is um it's just kind of a non-starter for me because i i am a product of everything i hear all of my influences and things like that you know so so if i'm writing a piece of music for an orchestra let's say like a classical orchestra you can bet even if i'm not conscious of it elements are going to come in from non-classical music, from jazz, from improvisation, from, um, you know, I used to listen to a lot of grunge music, a little bit of metal, right? And and just those sounds, maybe even the birds or the cottonwood trees as particularly influenced one of my pieces. So I don't know, I, it's hard for me to, I know it's cliche to say this, but it's hard for me to put any kind of label on it. Yeah. I mean, that's not cliche. I've gotten such a variety of answers to that question, Hmm. which is, I almost stopped asking it and then Patty did it for me. And I was like, Oh, that was unexpected. So yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I like having questions that have a variety of answers based on how people feel about it. Yeah. I would love to hear anything you can tell me about this piece written by you that I'll be playing in the Sioux City Symphony this upcoming season. It's, yeah, it's starting to take shape pretty nicely. I, like, I actually had an idea 
to germinate um, with this piece of music that was influenced directly by an album called Focus by Stan Getz. And it's really, the album's really more by Eddie Sauter, who essentially composed all of these really wonderful string orchestra, mostly string orchestra. Um, I think there's some percussion and, and piano maybe in there. These, these beautiful compositions that uh, the, the famous saxophonist Stan Getz came into the studio and essentially just improvised over. And it created one of my favorite albums of all time, Focus. So my original idea was I wanted to do something like that for the oboe, something where um, I could come in and do a lot of just improvisation. It's sort of taken a little bit more of a through composed route at this point, um, but there certainly will be elements of improvisation in there, definitely. And my concept at the moment is a three movement piece of music. And I'm, I'm very well into basically composed the first movement. Um, the second movement is composed, but not yet engraved or orchestrated. Um, and then the third movement is outlined just on staff paper. Yeah, some ideas. I had a second movement that I scrapped completely and totally started over. That's, that's you bronzed it. I bronzed it. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Into the fire. Into yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll probably use that material for something else. Oh, okay. But <laughs> it didn't fit this where this piece was going as well as I had hoped. So no, that kind of that's reminded me um we worked with are you familiar with libby larson a bit yeah yeah Yeah. so we mm -hmm. the quartet um artaria worked with her on the fourth string quartet and she had five movements in it and when we played them all i mean she this this has been premiered and things like this it's not like we were doing the premiere of it or anything but when we played it for her she was like you know what the fifth movement does not that's in a different piece and so we truncated that and i was like oh okay i mean because there's been recordings and obviously other performances of it, but yeah, it's just in that can be one of the toughest things as a composer is. Or to we just didn't play it well. Know. I'm just kidding. Well, maybe not. <laughs> like, nah. just, just to know to kind of there's no perfect piece of music in existence, but but just to have a better sense with experience of what not to include, right? What not to write because it's so easy to have all of these ideas and want to put everything into every composition. And that reminds me of kind of a, a quote I heard in a review recently of a, of a literary work of a film actually, that said, you know, we, in, in, in a lot of context nowadays, we expect every film to tell every story. And we can't, we can't do that. That's not a basis for great art. So to, to really step back and look at it and go, that's like the coolest part of this entire concerto, but it doesn't belong. <laughs> and like, hmm. let it go, right? Like, and that that's happening to me more often now than it used to when I was a, a younger composer. Interesting. Yeah. We're gonna start off with something that is a ton of fun. Visually, it's also very fun. So I highly recommend checking this out on YouTube. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, do you want to talk a little about it? Or I could say a couple words before we hear it. Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. So this is a piece called Vivace, 
for two oboes and two English horns because it was recorded in quarantine (laughs) when everyone had to make music with themselves. And this is what Jeff decided to do with his free time, I guess. Um, Uh (laughs) And I think you also said that you were um, learning how to do some video editing techniques. Yep. Yep. You know, just the real standard stuff, iMovie or whatever else people were using at the time. Yeah, this is way less standard than the stuff I learned how to do. And it's great entertainment. So, all right, you ready? Oh, goodness. So were you, I was expecting a shaker, but you were shaking, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the parts of an oboe, but like the bottom, the bell of it or something like that? Bell, yeah, the bell. Okay. (laughs) That was my question exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. No, 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 don't be fooled. It didn't make any sound. (laughs) Okay, I was like, wait. (laughs) (laughs) There were no beads inside or anything. (laughs) Missed opportunity. I know, I know. That's how that goes. (laughs) Yeah, I love the playfulness of it. I mean, obviously, if you see the video, you can see the full effect of the playfulness. (laughs) But even in, you know, the compositional techniques, like all of the really close intervals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's not something, honestly, that I I thought too hard about when I was writing this. Um, There were just harmonies that I really enjoyed. There were there were rhythmic things that just kind of struck me it wasn't like um i wasn't going for a particular philosophy or anything like that um definitely not it just one of the things that has been a challenge to me in composition is writing fast music so um i was just kind of trying to jump on that bandwagon and have some fun and 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 in an intuitive way just whatever kind of harmonies and rhythms came to me that's that's what got put down your next piece that we'll listen to is an oboe quartet, but it is not four oboes. No, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I no think as a cellist, I, as a cellist, when you hear for a cello quartet, I just assume four cellos. But so that's where my brain went. Originally. The oboe quartet is kind of a, a small subgenre of chamber music. Um, yeah. So we have precedent like Mozart and uh, and other composers who have written for Ar- Oboe. Ar- and- Arnold. Yeah, I've played yes. a couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I took that same instrumentation and, and uh, wrote this for it.
Well, I picked that part particularly because of that's you playing, right? It is. Yeah. Part, mostly because of the things that you can do on the oboe, but also like, I'm sure that influences how you write for the oboe. It, it does indeed. And it also kind of works the other way too. So I can play things that I think just sound intuitive and natural and, and um, bending notes, right? I, you're probably talking about some of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. blue notes and whatnot, sliding here and there. The what? Blue, blue notes? Blue notes. Blue notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll spare you the lecture on what the blue note is, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, you kind of get into um, microtonal territory there, but for all practical kind of conversations, it's just the sliding and the bending around which are which are sounds that are very very much in all of our ears right so they're not like necessarily new sounds but but the fact that you hear an oboe doing them might kind of make your ear perk up a little bit because you're not used to it but the point of course is not to show off extended technique um, but just to play music in a really really natural sensibility Um, so you can hear the blues influence you can probably hear in that excerpt Americana folk influence, um, and even some um, some traditional sort of gospel harmonies, the parallel moving um, like one and two chords, kinds of that that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think I just called it oboe quartet. So can you talk a little bit about the title of the piece? Um, yeah, yeah. So I I wrote this piece while I was in college i was studying at eastman at the time and i remember a particular artist who came to give a concert in our recital hall who who just showed up with him and his guitar and just played the most beautiful kind of folk music and he had a wonderful voice and just very simple strumming guitar chords and i remember at the moment thinking you know what he's doing right now in here is just like destroying shattering the walls of this conservatory in the best way and so that's kind of been a journey of mine is is just to really appreciate and enjoy and be influenced by music uh like folk music different kinds of folk traditions so i added a subtitle about this but i think it doesn't really have anything to do with the composition um subtitle is in case polly flakes about the cracker thing (laughs) and i don't know why i kept thinking of the phrase polly want a cracker (laughs) and i was thinking at the time well maybe polly doesn't but i would (laughs) so there's there's really no no meaning or symbolism behind that just fun (laughs) okay I'd like to just ask a brief question that kind of goes back to the original um, idea of the bending and potential, I mean, whatever you, whether you want to call it extended techniques or not. And it's mm-hmm. about, as a composer, um, the notation limitations, or if there are any, and how you feel about musical notation and how that expresses the sound that you actually want. Because I, I don't know what, what that notation looks like on on for oboe but as a as a performer that performs a lot of contemporary music there's a lot of room and wiggle room for interpretation at times 
for there certainly is yeah there really is um and that's again that's part of the beauty of music and having others like we that's what we do we play music that was written by others most of the time um so so everything is interpreted right through through another lens but as far as notation goes yeah it's extremely limiting in a lot of ways um but i don't get too caught up in like this is the way it must be played when other people play my music like if there's an i fully accept that you know everyone's going to interpret things differently and the meaning to somebody else may be completely the opposite of the meaning it has for me that's okay that the music is out there and that's what happens right that's just the natural course of things um i do um, in my mind, a lot of times when I'm composing, I imagine a lot of um, non-rhythmic textures that are simultaneous with um, very rhythmic, regular pulses also. And, and for me, that's been maybe the most challenging thing to try and notate. Because with, with slides and, and things like that, you can just put little lines and most people sort of get it, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but like something like that that's a little bit more involved where you where you're creating a texture of things that deliberately sound non-rhythmic over and simultaneously with something rhythmic it's easy to do on paper it's just a pain to do on the computer <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the limitations technologically in some ways too <laughs> and that's part of it too and I, I think the the standard at least for in my experience with the musicians that tend to play my music, the standard is like it needs to be on Finale or Sibelius or some kind of music notation software to be considered professional or, or whatever. Now, I know there are a lot of composers that won't do that, who's, who are still using pen and paper and things like that. And usually they're, to my knowledge, like they're my most respected composers. Hmm. And just one other small minor question, which is, similar of we tapped on it a little bit about how you say uh, you invite other people to interpret your music differently and it's it's for me i just thought well you know we have recordings of how benjamin Britten plays the cello sonata with you know for example or we have other composers performing their own music and since you are performing your own music in this scenario is how do you feel about whether people template your interpretation or how much you invite, like, you know, as for someone to come to this piece and try to learn it, how much, right. you know, if, yeah. If somebody is going to listen to a, a recording of me playing my own music and try to tap into what I'm going for, great. I'm not going to hold that against anybody. I'm not going to say, no, you need to have your own voice. Mm. Um, <laughs> inevitably, we all have our own voice, period. So I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to get too up in arms about that yeah um, but but i i guess i'm saying that more from a perspective that i fully realize that somebody might have a completely different approach or view or meaning or lack of meaning right to, mm -hmm. to my music than i do yeah. yeah maybe it's just my conservatory training in me to ask that question because mm -hmm. we're always yeah. like what did the source say what did, you know that kind of Right. I, I, yeah. I perform other people's music, right? I always, as we do, we want to take into context um, everything we possibly can, like historical perspective, period practice, theory and harmony informed decisions in terms of what notes do we emphasize? 
you know, thing, things like that, or like what was going on in the composer's life at this time. We, we try to make as an informed interpretation as possible. And I think as musicians, that's our duty to do that. But um, also, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Just make music. <laughs> All right, let's listen to the serpent's hypnotism. So this, <laughs> um, I think in, in this, you're really hearing a synthesis of a lot of different of my inspirations, particularly that are folk or um, if I could use the term non-classical influenced um, from other kinds of sounds in, uh, that I've heard. So, you, so I, I remember listening to um, a lot of Bulgarian music at the time and a lot of other kind of Eastern European um, music and just kind of letting the sounds absorb into me. And and one thing that I remember noting is that in as we study Western classical music, it seems like the lowest number of things we can have in any piece of music is two, right? When we're talking about harmonies, we're talking about Schenkerian analysis and, and things like that, right? Mm -hmm one and a five and we reduce it to those two things and um and i just started listening to bulgarian bagpipes the gaida or even even highland bagpipes um uh, again sort of thinking like maybe it would spark something because i'm an oboe player and these are double reed instruments these are kind of my ancestors um and it really did and one of the things was like hey you know what there's just a drone you know like what if Shanker came in and <laughs> tried to try to do an analysis of this? It would just yeah, be yeah. You one. might break Shanker. <laughs> you break Shanker. You'd be like, what? Different. He's it rolling over fit. in his grave. And, and why shouldn't it's not German enough? <laughs> why shouldn't that be musically uh, just as viable, right? Yeah. Well, and that's that's the you know that's the controversy of Shanker as well as yeah, like exactly. yeah, not all music fits his system. Yeah. No, it certainly doesn't. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so like drone sounds, right? And then the exploration and uh, spiritual expressiveness to me that you can explore from simply just having one note underlying everything that you do um, to me just like gives me a huge, it just really paves the way for all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things when you, when you mix modes or 
or kind of go out of the key of the drone and things like that, then the notes to me mean more expressively speaking. So you'll kind of hearing like a lot of drone stuff in that last piece. And then you're also hearing um, the sort of odd meter combinations that um, that you might find in, in a lot of Eastern European music. Uh, and it, this was like, um, <laughs> like Vivace, <laughs> uh, just recorded all on my own in my home studio um, as part of some incidental music um, that I was commissioned to compose back in the early 2000s. My hometown community youth theater group had me compose incidental music to several of their productions in those few years. And the idea was that nobody was going to be able to get hired to perform anything. You know, it, it was just kind of a hometown community theater sort of vibe. They just wanted somebody in the tech booth pressing play at the right time. Mm. Right? So I had to just record everything, which is, as I understand it, pretty standard now for composers, especially TV and film composers. It was a total exploration for me at the time, kind of getting to know that that kind of recording software and using what you have. So a combination of the instruments I could play or the um, instruments I could find in like a synthesizer bank, kind of things like that, or or getting creative. Like I would, you know, like do something like that in front of a microphone and and then put it through some processing to make what I felt sounded like a more organic sound and not just like we listen to, we listen to a lot of TV shows and movies and stuff. And when it's all electronic, we can tell and it's sort of a letdown. Since I don't play every instrument though, there had to be some electronic and mm -hmm. combined with some organic playing seemed to me to make a better sound, rounder sound. So that was actually, um, an excerpt from uh, the Jungle Book. Oh, um, fun! Yeah, yeah. So I, I had. Um, let's see what are what are some of the other ones that I had done for this group: the Jungle Book, Stuart Little, The Crucible, uh, The Little Prince. Um, those might be the four that I wrote incidental music for. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I love the title of this next piece. It's called Mostly Slow Music. And this excerpt comes from the fifth movement, Serenade. There's nothing like a string orchestra bass drop. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. So yeah, this piece of music, that is the fifth of five movements, a mostly slow music for chamber orchestra. And when I composed this, 
I, I really just was trying to write something really beautiful and explore some new harmonies and kind of get to know string instruments and, and, and how they blended together. Um, my, um, we were talking about our influences, teachers and mentors earlier, something that uh, Richard Kilmer used to say all the time to all of his students was when in doubt to play beautifully. That's a very easy quote to sort of to get behind and to and sort of see at face value. And there were times in my life when I started to consider that from a little bit of a different lens. And this piece of music was written during one of those times, when in doubt. So I, I would sort of take that. Um, I don't know how he meant this or not, but he was a wise man, so he probably knew it had different levels. Um, <laughs> you know, it's easy to think of that quote and go, if you don't know what to do with a, with a phrase of music, just play it really beautifully, right? Mm -hmm. But for me at that time, that meant like when you are in a period of doubt, of deep doubt, self-doubt, doubt about life, like life doubt, play beautifully, right? Mm. And, and we all go through these periods. I think all of us probably do go through these periods that are dark and full of doubt. And so that resonated with me a lot during that period. And I went, you know, I really just want to write something really beautiful right now. Um, and that's that was what I tried to do. Very lush, very passionate, very intense. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd say yeah, you succeeded. Maybe another more, I dare say, more universal way of twisting some of those words would be when in doubt, seek beauty. I love it. Yeah. Because then I think to, yeah, like for us, that's a very player mentality of play beautifully, but but maybe search and seek for beauty when you're in. in Even better. Yeah. Yeah. More profound, maybe. But I, don't know. <laughs> I like sure. it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So the last piece that we'll hear today from you is called Desert Winds. And as I was telling you before we started recording, we could have done the whole episode on just this piece. So we actually have two clips. I calmed myself down. <laughs> but is there anything that you want to say about this piece and the origins of the piece before we hear some of the music? Sure. So um, this piece has actually undergone a lot of different mutations, maybe you might say. Originally, it was a melody that I came up with just on electric guitar alone. And, um, and it was something that that came to me while driving through the deserts of Southern California, uh, Mojave area and stuff like that. And I spent a lot of time in my youth driving through these areas and was very, very inspired by the landscape if I were to be a painter, I think I'd be a landscape artist hmm. uh, and and the Southwest desert kind of biomes always really resonated with me and there and you can you can drive at least it used to be this way, maybe not as much anymore, but you could drive a whole day and not see another vehicle on the road out there. I mean, it's very, very isolated. Um, the tumbleweeds, you know, <laughs> blowing across. And, yeah. and for me, that was a place of great spirituality. And I both loved it and was uncomfortable with it at the same time. So, so there's, there's an element of loneliness, right, out there, which I discovered to me to have both positive and negative connotations. So there's, you know, when we're lonely, nobody likes to be lonely. That sucks. That's negative. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, being alone can actually be incredibly enlightening and very comforting, 
right? So, so it kind of was both things for me. And, and I wonder, I wasn't conscious of this at the time, but I wonder if when you hear kind of like the mixed modality of the melody, maybe that's towing the line back and forth between those two things. When I first joined the South Dakota Symphony, um, the wind quintet was doing a lot of tours and many of them were were out to um, the reservation areas and Pine Ridge in particular was one that um, I took this piece and arranged it for the wind quintet on one of those tours. And it seemed to really resonate with a lot of the students out there. And, and I discovered, you know, like the desert and the prairie out in that area actually are kind of similar. And, and so people just sort of got it. They went, oh, I, I get what you're talking about. And a young student, uh, a young lady said, hey, I have an electric guitar. If I go and get it, um, would you play on that, how it originally sounded on that instrument? And I said, sure, right? So she went and got it. And, and so we did that. And she came with us to every other show we played <laughs> um, at every school for the rest of the day with her electric guitar and her little pocket amplifier. Wow. Um, and to, so I could sort of demo to the students how this melody sounded originally before I arranged it for the wind quintet. And as a result, later on, we kind of started what is now formally called the Lakota Music Project with the South Dakota Symphony, which has undergone many facets, and I've been involved with it since the beginning. And, um, and David Geyer asked me to um, expand the piece for our chamber orchestra and tour with it. So what you're going to hear, I don't know actually exactly what excerpts we're going to hear now, but, but in this piece of music, if you listen to it it's in its entirety, you'll hear some collaborative, collaborative drumming, collaborative vocals um, from uh, some of our musician friends who are from the Lakota tradition in their music and their singing and drumming. And you'll also hear uh, just implanted right in the piece, the electric guitar. Um, I figured why not, right? Since, since that was the original instrument, um, I was gonna put that right in kind of at the end of the piece. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Sorry, you'll hear that. You'll hear that. <laughs> Surprise. I hope you'll hear that. <laughs> well, shall we take a listen? Sure. It's a captivating piece. Thank you. It's it's really just based on the one melody that you heard. 
Um, again, kind of going back to simplifying our Shankarian classical <laughs> right? There's not really a one and a five. It's really just one melody that ties the whole thing together. Um, and you'll hear you hear it there hauntingly kind of performed in canon or echo even um, by a bassoon and oboe. And Thank you uh, and John Tompkins. It was me and John Tompkins. Um, and I indicated, you know, particularly to him, like, just be as free as you want to be with this stretch and whatever you want to do. And to Patty, to your point earlier about notation, this is one tricky kind of element um, in this piece of music where you'll hear repeated pitches where it's not really a standard part of our classical training to, um, as, especially as wind players anyway, to, um, to delineate repeated pitches without using our tongue to re-articulate them, even if they are under a slur. So da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and what I, uh, you might have heard there is we were going for simply just a breath pulsation, ah-ah-ah-ah-ah-ah, like that. Um, and, and that's uh, very intentionally to, to kind of give a little bit of an homage to a um, Lakota or even generally Plains Indians vocal style um, that kind of has have these guttural vocables, right, where the, the note doesn't really stop. You might, like I always think of the opening of Sibelius' second symphony in a way for you string players, right, um, with the dashes under the slur. But if you were to just sort of pulsate them a little more than you normally do, it's hard to notate that. It's hard mm -hmm. to. Yeah, that's very easy to do on string with strings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just wanted to make a small comment about, I, I mean, I don't know whether this is intentional or just completely accidental, but the opening of that really reminds me of what Freddie Mercury used to do in his stadiums, you know, hey, oh, hey, like all that stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did you ever think of that? It just, I mean, no. I know it's completely no. out of context, but I do think that what's really fun about that is that it is so universal. Like there's something about the descending fourth. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That it's like, so that's, I don't know, just it's part of our, I just existence of being human or, vo or throwing our voices in some way and canonic, it's right? Years, something that, that passes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, whether you knew thought of it or not. <laughs> no, I never, never thought yeah. about Freddie Mercury. But the fun <laughs> part about that is we've we've done it many times and in different contexts where that will be the audience participation, right? We'll, we'll oh. have I'll have students at schools or communities wherever we go on tour, um, and it's something that people can pick up on really quickly. And it's yeah, it's interesting, you know, because even even the the embarrassed show off middle schooler you know kind of mentality they can all pick up on it and eventually most people feel pretty comfortable doing that repeating figure um and then we kind of just will start playing yeah along with it so it's kind of fun it's a little fun thing we do <laughs> yeah all right well since you already know a guitar solo is coming up let's let's take a listen <laughs>
don't usually like to play the very end of clips, but I just felt like that really needed, it really needed to do that. It needed to go all the way to the end. It did. And, you know, studio fade, why not? That's, yeah. the, way we, that's the way we put it on, on the CD, on the recording. Um, again, an unusual thing to do with a classical orchestral CD just to do a fade out like that. But um, it, was, it was the best decision musically to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and as I listen back to that again, I'm reminded like how, you know, when when I orchestrate and compose music um, that is intended to be collaborative with two traditions that that are pretty pretty different actually, like musically very different traditions. For instance, in in a traditional Lakota singing, you'll you, it's not a fixed pitch system or a fixed tempo system, so so things like that are hard for us to adapt to, but even harder <laughs> is, is placing these musicians in a situation where they are trying to adapt to the Western European classical tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's something about which I was very sensitive with my friends and collaborators in this. And another reason for the electric guitar, because I wanted to write things since I'm asking the uh, Creekside singers from Pine Ridge to go way out of their comfort zone and play with orchestral musicians. I needed to make sure that I asked the orchestral musicians to do something equally as uncomfortable too, at least. Yeah. Um, one thing where we could all just kind of come together in commonality is the appreciation for an electric guitar, you know? And so it was like, oh yeah. So that's, it kind of just glued this whole thing together. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your music, sharing about your background with us today. My pleasure. What's coming up next for you other than this gig you have to get to? Yeah, <laughs> I get to the big band at the lake tonight. <laughs> Gosh, I'm I'm writing a lot. I'm, I'm trying to use my off season right now to do a lot of composing um, and uh, some traveling um, and just sort of let let ideas sink in let them process in their natural way. And then hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll be able to do the busy work, the grind work and like getting them on paper and orchestrated and fleshed out in the way that I want them to go. But this this um, piece of music, this composition with the Sioux City Symphony slated for February, that's the, the most immediate thing on my docket right now. I'm really having fun diving into that. Yeah, Looking I can't wait to play it. Cool, me neither. And hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and there's some more um, uh, South Dakota symphony um, compositions in the works as well. And I always write regularly for um, the Dakota Wind Quintet in which I play also. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, if people want to hear more of your music, where can they find you? I have a website that I don't update. <laughs> <laughs> but there are links on there. I believe it is jeffreypaulmusic.com. <laughs> it sounds like me and my website, actually. Um, yeah, and, and I have a YouTube channel. And Asia, maybe you can even, you've got that pulled up, right? You could even. I do. Terrible like, about those aspects of. You are Jeff Paul on YouTube. There, there you go. I'm also. Jeff Paul in life. So that works out. Yeah, weird how that works out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's 
been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. And I can't wait to make music together again. Next Thank season. you. Me neither. This was great. Thank you guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to meet you. You too. Cheers. 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 <laughs> well, like, yeah. subscribe. Yeah. Poor Me Mozart is on Instagram and Facebook at Poor Me Mozart. You can email us at pourmeamozart at gmail.com. Please rate on iTunes. I think you can rate and write reviews on Spotify. I think yeah. so. Yeah. If you're feeling extra generous, the Patreon is active again. It is surprise, surprise at Poor Me Mozart. Follow us all the places. Yeah. And tell your friends and family. Yes, please. Up next on Poor Me a Mozart, we'll hear from Jenny Klukin, who plays jazz on the marimba and has to explain it all the time. So you should probably just listen to this episode and hear what she has to say about what all of that means. I don't claim to be like a full on jazz musician. You know, I'm not out there like playing standards with the jazz combo, but I definitely dabble in jazz and I love to improvise. Um, I've been writing a lot more like American folk music sounding stuff lately. I feel like I do so many things on such an odd little thing that it can be kind of hard to do an elevator pitch about sometimes because I play so many genres and it's on this big weird thing and it's like kind of hard to explain but once I get in front of people it's like, oh that you know it's just I, I try to just play really really singable relatable music that you know you go and get a cocktail in a lounge and just relax and hear a ballad or um, some like Latin tune, you know, just, I like casual listening kind of environments. So yeah, that's, that's sort of what I do. Well, shall we take a break and then come back and listen to your some to your to some of your music words? <laughs> you know, they let anyone have a podcast these days. <laughs> anyway, let's take a break. Okay. All right. You're doing great, Asia. Thanks. <laughs>